embrace you. Uh, I'm Wayne. I'm not calling. Good to be here. Great to be sober. Love AA. I want to thank my posse. I see him on on the see several of them in the pictures here. I want to thank my posse for coming out and showing up to support me tonight. I love those guys, and I know they love me. They're not my followers. They're my fellow AA trudgers, and they're here to support me because I know they love me, whether they like it or not. <laughs> I love them too, uh, and I want to thank uh, Steve for driving me down here tonight. Uh, and my grand spot, Carrie, for making us behave. Uh, and my friend, John, I love you so much. And I'm glad you was able to make it out here. We're both a couple of gimps right now, but, uh, you know, they, they, when they say sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, they mean it. So, uh, you know, uh, Monica, thank you for inviting me to come and share. I'm really glad I get to be here with you guys tonight. It wasn't for certain. If it would have been raining, I would have had to have not come because of the risk of falling. And uh, I'm timing myself because I, I know you're timing me, but sometimes I don't listen to other people. <laughs> so I'm timing myself because I have a tendency to get hypnotized by my own voice. <laughs> I'm not one of those guys that says I don't like this job. I love this job. Uh, this is one of the most precarious jobs in all of AA, in my opinion. It has the temptation to feed your ego. It also has the temptation to crush it. It all depends on the, it all depends on the crowd. So uh, I want to report I don't need your approval, but I sure like it. <laughs> I love this thing, you know, uh, the opportunity to be at service to Alcoholics Anonymous, I never knew that that would turn out to be the bright spot of my life. I didn't know that. If you're new, welcome, Nolan, uh, Evan, April, welcome. I hope you newcomers stay. Don't use me as your muse to have an excuse not to come to AA. Uh, if something I says offends you, I, I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to somebody else. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I, I have a disagreement with your opinion. Newcomer is not the most important person in the room. Right now, I am, by God. <laughs> You come a close second. And, uh, uh, what we call the newcomer is the lifeblood of AA. Without you, AA can't coexist and survive. And so the newcomer is the lifeblood of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I sure hope you stay. I hope you find something here that, that lures you. And I hope perhaps I can say something in my message uh, that will maybe tempt you to come to another meeting as opposed to stay away from another meeting. I'm going to stick to AA. I'm, I'm a recovered big book thumper. I'm going to get that out there right now. What do I mean by recovered big book thumper? It means I no longer hit my sponsors in the head when they don't pay attention when I'm reading. Uh, and uh, uh, some of them seem to need to be read to for crying out loud. It's like, it's like AA daycare. And uh, uh, Steve's a good example of that. I, uh, uh, you know, I think about my life and, uh, you know, I'm counting days, newcomer. I want you to know that I'm, I'm 18 days sober today, uh, plus three months, plus 45 years. So, at that. Uh, my sobriety date is uh, my sobriety date is November 8th, 1977. I've had no booze, pills, powders, potions, or lotions that affect me from the neck up from that day to this. I do have a history of dating mind and mood already women. Uh, <laughs> and I've already seen you tonight, and I ain't coming near you. I'm telling you that right now. My sponsor threatened me with another 12-step program, and I quit doing that crap on the spot. Uh, I will tell you, I also spent 17 trips to a psychiatric hospital, so I'm kind of a mixed bag. It's, it's like a, when I came to you, I didn't believe I was alcoholic. I did not believe. I was convinced by the medicine men. I was convinced I was mentally ill. I was convinced that I was psychiatric and that I had a lot of different psychoses that medicated me for from the age of nine to 27. The one thing they couldn't diagnose me was having a spiritual malady. They can't, they can't diagnose that. 
they can't put that under a microscope and they can't see how all these symptoms that I am exposing, they can't link that to a spiritual malady. AA linked it and it linked it for me. And I want to tell you during those 17 psychiatric institutionalizations, I was in the Watertown Insane Asylum. You can Google that, just do it later, please. Uh, you can Google the Watertown Insane Asylum. You'll get a look where I was 14 times. I have to admit, I was in there four times on self, self sign in because that's where my girlfriend lived. <laughs> that's a true story. We nicknamed her Psycho Sober Civil. Uh, she was in there. She murdered her entire family. Uh, she was found not guilty by reason of insanity, and she was put in this, this serious institution that I was in. And I just found her story fascinating. <laughs> My psychosis met her psychosis, and it was love. And uh, she had so many different personalities. I was like dating somebody new every day. That is not that's not a joke. It was very interesting. <laughs> How can I possibly believe I'm an alcoholic? If you're new and you're in this room and you don't know if you're alcoholic or not, I understand. There's so much conflicting information that oozes around the universe for me to pick from, and I will pick from it because I don't know what's wrong with me. Does anybody else have that theme song? Yeah, but what's wrong with me? Okay, I'm borderline personality, but what's wrong with me? I mean, I can tell you some of my diagnoses are fascinating. Uh, Munchausen by proxy, that's one of my diagnoses. Uh, borderline personality, narcissistic personality disorder. That's my favorite. It sounds so much more clinical than self-centered. <laughs> Because see, when you're narcissistic, there's no steps to take. There's only pills to take. But when you're self-centered, there's inventory work to do. So sometimes narcissistic sounds good to me. I don't know about any of you. But, uh, uh, so when I came to you, it was a mixed bag. And uh, I'm not going to be an alcoholic. I don't want to be an alcoholic. And I, you see, unfortunately, I know the science of ethanol alcohol. I know that science. And so I almost died because I know that science. Because I had a world of people out there telling me I was that I had addiction to alcohol, that, that alcohol is addictive. And I know the science of alcohol, and it is not for most drinkers. 34 out of 35 drinkers can drink with impunity. And I didn't understand that. It baffled me because all I drank was beer. Now, how in God's name can you get addicted to Budweiser, crying out loud? And it's like I used to sit at Larry's waist and stare at that bottle and say, I'm winning this time. I'm only going to have three, and I'm going to go see my kid play ball. But you see, after three, I don't care if my kid's playing ball or not. I don't care. And it's, it was a baffling thing. And our book talks about that and how it works. Bill put alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. What a statement that is. Alcohol, cunning, baffling. There's nothing cunning about alcohol because it doesn't have an intelligence. I'm the cunning part. I can find a reason to drink that makes sense to me. I can find a way to drink alcohol and fool myself into believing it's a good idea. I'm cunning about that. The baffling feature of alcohol is my inability to leave it alone when I knew I should. Or what's worse is when I want to. And I'm like a moth to the flame. I cannot keep going back and I don't know why. I also like fine wine, like Ripple and Boots. But how many of you remember Ripple? You know, if you're, if you're under the age of 45, don't raise your hand because you're lying. Those of you who remember Ripple, that's wine without a spine. That's, it's like, never saw a grape. And, uh, uh, I like Ripple, I like Boone's Farm, Strawberry Hill. Uh, because when I puke, it looks like I'm bleeding internally. And uh, <laughs> lie and tell people I have cancer. And they buy me drinks. <laughs> I will go to any lakes for a drink. You know, my sponsor told me if I could only transmit that to AA and become willing to go to any lakes for sobriety, as I was willing to go to any lakes to get a drink, 
I also like Cisco and Night Train and Thunder. Anybody else fly the bird? Th Thunderbird, not the other one. Uh, those were what we call the low life, top shelf, no cork wine. And uh, I didn't mean to drink all that stuff. That's just what happened. That's where my destiny was, I suppose, as an alcoholic. And uh, I didn't understand. I did not understand. I was baffled. I was baffled that, that when I take a few drinks, something happens to me that I don't understand. When I take a few drinks, I become civilized. No, you read the big book about the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde type. That's my brother. You see, my brother's normal in every regard, except for the effect alcohol has on him. When he drinks alcohol, he'll cheat on his, he'll cheat. He'll rob, he'll steal, he'll maim, he'll hurt. But when he's sober, he would never think of doing anything like that. Me, I'm like that before I take a drink. Selfish to the core, self-centered, restless irritable discontent. I think I came out of the shoot restless irritable discontent. I think my first resentment was when that doctor smacked me on the butt to bring me around. And uh, I don't remember that, but it's a good one to put on your inventory. <laughs> I had no idea, folks, what was wrong with me. And, I, you know, I come from an alcoholic home. And I don't want to get too far into that because I don't have the amount of time that we require. But I want to tell you this. If you come from a broken home, an alcoholic home, there's violence, sexual, physical, immoral behavior. I come from that home. And I'm not going to use that as a victim's card because victims don't get to stay sober. I have to work so hard not to be a victim of my own circumstances because victims don't get to stay sober. It's a gift that we're here. We have an opportunity to get out of the victim way of life. And especially since I have been victimized, I'm just going to tell you one story because this was the, this was the jumping off spot, the, the beginning stages of, of all the brutality that I experienced. When I was nine years old, I lived in a little farm town, uh, Moline, Illinois, uh, and a neighbor took me on Friday evening and talked me into his house. And I went in because I wanted the candy. And then he took me down to his basement and locked me in his coal bin. And for three days, he tortured my little body. He raped me. He put things in my body. He beat me. He burned me. And he cut me. And on Monday morning, he took me and threw me out on the street naked and told me if I told anybody, he'd kill my family first, then he'd kill me. I want you to know I never talked about that till the day I took my fist up. That didn't make me alcoholic. But it was something to deal with when I got sober. You know, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, I did not believe this statement. The big book says these principles, by the way, it's the 12 steps. If you read your 12 and 12 on page 15, paragraph three, it goes like this. If I can remember, oh, I forget how it goes now. Oh yeah, AA's principle, AA's 12 steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which if practices way of life, can expel the obsession to drink and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. There was nothing whole about me except that hole in my soul. I was not happy. I couldn't get happy no matter what. The only time I felt a semblance of what happy might look like is when I was drinking Budweiser and Larry's Waste and hanging out with the guys. I found out I could play baseball, softball. I found out that I was a good athlete. I needed to be a good athlete. So when I drink beer, I can play baseball. When I can't, there's something about me that's defeated. I, I was seemingly born defeated. I know some of you understand that. It's like I couldn't even get out of the gate. And then I met with his violence in my childhood. My father was an alcoholic truck driver. He said he was alcoholic, I didn't. Drove truck out of Chicago, worked for a company called Knox Motor. He was a union steward and he worked for a guy named Jimmy Hoffa. And my dad was one of his tough guys. My dad was a tough guy. He wanted me to be a tough guy. I wrote poetry. <laughs> I didn't know I wrote poetry. Do you know that thing that happened to me when I was nine years old? I wrote this story, leaving out the main details. I wrote this story. Come to find out later years, I wrote a sonnet. And it was all about what happened to me in that coal bin. And my father found it. And he yelled out, what faggot wrote this? And he almost beat me to death. 
I'm not banging on my dad. God bless him. I forgive him. He's an alcoholic. He deserves my forgiveness. But you know what? I never picked up, I never wrote another thing until I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not a victim. I, I, I have victory over alcohol. And I have the other thing that AA talks about. I have freedom from the body to self. I was so locked inside myself, I had no freedom. Does anybody relate to that? To be, just like, I like to say that I was born with my eyeballs locked inward. All I could see was me. And if I said, I love you, it was 100% transactional. I didn't know what that emotion felt like. I had no clue what that meant. See, love to me was get beat up. Love to me is be sexually violated. Love to me is to be taken advantage of. Love to me is be bullied. That's what love is to me. I didn't know that until I got a sponsor and he helped me understand my old ideas. You know, the book says many of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas. I didn't try to hold on to those ideas. They were fixed ideas in my mind from my experiences. So I had these old ideas that were keeping me from growing and prospering and becoming free. And I didn't know that. Thank God for step four, because it was the first time I was able today to look inside and I didn't have to go alone. If you're new, we don't do this alone. And, the, and that, that thing to befell me as a kid in that alcoholic family that I lived in, I, I was really an interesting kid. I have to admit that too. Before that trauma ever hit me, I was a peculiar kid already. I was eating milk, milk dog biscuits. I got, I got a, a dependent on milk, milk dog biscuits. That was my first obsession. <laughs> Anybody else? Liver snap or anything like that? I did. I, I, I love milk bones. I started eating them when I was six. I loved them. Made my dad crazy. He'd, he'd be being, he'd, he'd have the boys in from Chicago on Friday night playing poker. And I knew what would bother him. I loved doing it. I would go out in the kitchen and snatch one of them milk bones, put it in my mouth, and walk right into the poker room. Every man in that room was strapped. And I would come walking in there with a big smile on my face and a, and a milk bone dangling from my mouth. And they would say to my dad, What's wrong with him? It was worth the beating I got to see the expression on their face every time. But I needed them now. And I'm not violating their tradition. I'm just telling you a quick story. I couldn't live without them. I thought about them all day long. I, did. I hated the dog because he got them and I didn't. <laughs> I, I'm not going to tell you what I did, but I did something to that dog to curtail his desire for milk bones. And that, he would not give me one. And it's the, the selfish dog. And, uh, uh, but I'm a clever little pre-budded alcoholic. I, I get an idea. Anybody else clever beyond your years when you're a little kid? And you, well, I decided I'd go grocery shopping with my mom because I'm clever. Well, she lost track of me because, but I was really, a, I was stunned when I was a little kid. And my mom, she lost track of me because I would escape. And she would be over milking eggs. She said, you hear over the loudspeaker of the, of the little mom and pop grocery store, will someone please come get their kid out of the dog food aisle? Because I'm sitting there on the floor eating milk bones out of the box. And uh, I don't see a thing wrong with that. I get an 86 from my first grocery store. and uh, uh, I've got to have one. Now I'm watching cartoons. They come out with a family-sized milk bone. That's that big. That sucker looked like this big to my little eight-year-old mind. And I'm, I'm thinking, i got to have one of them. And my mom won't let me go grocery shopping no more. Now i got to resent it against her. I hate the dog. He won't share. It's like I'm going out of my mind. Saturday morning, she thinks I'm out playing wiffle ball with my brother and sister. I'm hiding behind the couch because I know I'm going to wear her down. She's going to give that dog a bone sometime during the day, and I'm having my way. And all of a sudden, I heard her call the dog out to the kitchen. I see that beagle trotting through the living room, his big old ears flopping, you know, arrogant and everything. And he looks at me behind the couch and gives me one of these, you know, and goes out in the kitchen. I hear it rustling around him, and here he comes walking in the living room with one of that big family-sized milk bone dangling from his mouth. That poor dog don't know what hit him. I lit on top of him and I put him in a chokehold. 
Every ounce of my little nine, eight-year-old body was choking that dog out, and he will not let go of that milk bone. So I bit his, I bit his ear. And I'm, I am chewing on that ear, and he ain't letting go and letting God. I'll tell you that right now. And it's like, I keep chewing, and he just keeps growling. And all of a sudden, he drops the milk bone. And my first thought was, I'm winning. You ever had that thought right before disaster hits? Well, the reason he dropped it was so he could bite me back. I have a scar right here, and I have a scar right here where that dog locked on my face. And I want you to know something, newcomer. He, he beat the desire for milk bone right out of my little body. He shook that desire right out of my head. From that day to this, I've had no milk bones, no sponsor, no 12-step. No inventory. Don't got to pray, meditate, nothing. I have not had a milk bone from that day to this. I'd be a winner in Milk Bone Anonymous if they had one. Alcohol did the same thing to me. Somehow my body doesn't metabolize alcohol the way it's supposed to, and it builds up this craving. Joe and Charlie taught me that. And those enzymes that can never be input through science, those missing enzymes that we now know scientifically, a thing called alcohol dehydrogenase and aldehyde dehydrogenase, the two enzymes necessary to metabolize alcohol, turn it into uh, uh, carbon dioxide, sugar, and water to assimilate like normal drinkers do. I don't have that. And so it builds that acetone level up and it creates a craving. I have that. I have conceded to myself, my innermost self, that I have that. So I can never safely drink alcohol in any amount at all, in any form at all. I'm convinced. Step one, part one. Step one, part two, my life had become unmanageable. My life was unmanageable before I ever took the first drink. Taking a few drinks made it seem manageable. Anybody else? You give me a few drinks and life seems tenable, manageable, acceptable. The worst thing you could do is tell me don't drink. It's the worst thing you could do. My sponsor never once told me not to drink. Here's what he said. Hey, dummy, do you know this program works better if you don't drink? <laughs> now, there's a difference there. He never once told me don't drink. As a matter of fact, he took me to the big book. And he says, if you ain't convinced, step over to the nearest bar and try some controlled drinking. It may be worth a good case of the jitters to get a full knowledge of your condition. I'm glad they wrote that because I can't not drink no matter what. I can't. I have to drink. I'm compelled to drink. And if you don't afford me something that produces a similar effect as alcohol does, and here's what, the, and here's what I have discovered in our book, Alcoholics Anonymous, that effect is. I had no idea. You know, we hear all about the promises, don't we? We hear the promises are talked about a lot. Where are you going? <laughs> Can I have a cup? <laughs> Don't hurt me, I'm sensitive. <laughs> now, where was I? What? Promises, yeah. We hear a lot about the promises, don't we? But you know what we don't hear a whole lot about is the two goals of AA and the three phases of 12 step development. And I guess I want to talk about that tonight. I never know what I'm going to talk about. It's kind of, I come to a meeting, I see, the, I see the membership, fellowship, and you move my spirit to go a different direction than I had planned maybe. And that's happened to me tonight. And so I want to talk about these two goals of AA, and I want to talk about the three phases of AA development, especially since we've got a lot of newcomers in the room. The two goals of AA, both are in the big book and both are in the 12 and 12. They're not spoken that way, they're alluded to. And the first goal is victory over alcohol. The second goal is freedom from the bondage of self. And as Chuck C. taught me when I was new about duality, there's a duality to that. I can't have one without the other. I can't have victory over alcohol until I experience freedom from the bondage of self. 
And telling me I'm self-centered and selfish is not enough. There's not enough depth and weight. You can tell me that till you're blue in the face and I won't do a thing about it. I'll say, thanks for sharing. <laughs> and then I'll give you the finger or something. But the way I've experienced in my 45 years, three months and 18 days, one day at a time, is that I get to live in freedom from the bondage of self today. I, I can be so self-consumed with myself. You know, I see my friend John and I know what he's gone through physically. My condition right now is nothing compared to his. That helps me not feel sorry for myself. Anybody else ever, ever dealt with self-pity? You ever had depression diagnosed when it's really self-pity? And I'll tell you what, there's no pill for self-pity. They'll medicate me for depression, but there's no medication for, for, for spiritual depression except one thing Father Dowling talked to Bill about. Thank you. And that's the spiritual experience we talked about in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That actually is something that that tenderizes me, gets me ready for this thing called victory over alcohol and freedom for the bondage of self. You know, when I got, when I hurt myself on December 30th, uh, I slipped on some wet pavement and uh, Steve was there. He watched, he clapped while I landed. He thought it was the funniest thing ever. Saw. That's what newcomers are for. That's what your sponsors are for. When you get hurt, they can laugh at you. So I, I like that. He didn't know how bad I was hurt. And, uh, and, and it immobilized me. And I haven't been able to leave my home for two months. I haven't been able to walk. This is only the second week where I've really been able to get out and I didn't want to miss this talk. I didn't want to miss being here with you guys. That's, I'm willing to go to any lengths if I'm asked to do something in AA. And I, I hope you newcomers can adapt and adopt yourself to that. But I want to get back to how do I know that I have, that I've begun to experience that very thing in my life. And those three phases of 12-step recovery, we know about the three phases of AA development. They're the three legacies. And we must, we had to go through all three phases of AA development to get to that divine intervention place where we had the completion of our three legacies, the 12-step, 12 traditions, and our 12 concepts of world service. But there's also three phases of the 12-step development. The first phase is steps one, two, and three. The first phase is steps one, two, and three, desperation. Folks, I wouldn't have done a damn bit of what I'm talking to you about if I hadn't been utterly desperate. I was a desperation drinker, and I needed a solution for that because you see, what desperation drinking is, is when you drink past the effect produced, you can't find it anymore. That where I used to feel freedom from binds yourself when drinking, I don't feel it anymore. And so I'm drinking to try to recreate that original experience that I had back in the day. And it's not to be anymore. It's gone. And I don't want to go back to that, that desperation drinking. So I have to have, an, so I have to take that desperation and vent it in the right direction. And steps one, two, and three, I would have never done step three if I wasn't desperate and knew that if I didn't, I'd drink again. Without a doubt, I knew I would. And step two came to believe. I would never have initiated what it took to come to believe on that basis alone, unless I was desperate. And the good news is about steps four through nine, that's phase two. That's the restoration phase of 12-step development. And I want you newcomers to hear this because perhaps it will motivate you to not get stuck in four through nine. Because more people die on the third step side than the nine step side. And that four through nine gave me an opportunity to realize something. I've been arrested nine times, twice while drinking, seven times while drinking my body, taken out of AA meetings, seven times in handcuffs. You haven't lived to even taken out of an AA meeting in handcuffs. <laughs> Especially when the two cops were shoulder to shoulder dragging you through the front door and the newcomers holding that door open. And then as you slide by, he says, keep coming back. <laughs> Not a drink in my body those seven times. I didn't understand that was alcoholism too. That was that ism thing that hadn't been hadn't been fixed yet. That internal spiritual maladjustment 
that is talked about in the big book, that soul sickness, that once the disease is arrested, and folks, I don't care what the people out there say, in my opinion, and in Dr. Silkworth's opinion, the disease is arrested upon cessation of drinking. The disease has no longer got anything to do with my life. It's arrested when we stop drinking. And the evidence for that is when Dr. Silkworth says, we, the men and women of science, we only have one, one thing to suggest, and that's entire abstinence. That's all they have. In other words, the solution for the disease is don't drink. But then there's a second one for those of us in AA. It's that spiritual malady, that, that, that duality of the, of the problem with alcohol, is I haven't had a drink for quite some time. Thank you. I haven't had a drink for quite some time. And the truth of the matter is I may drink again someday. And if I do, it'll be for the very reason outlined in how it works, part two, where he says those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves this simple program. Folks, if you ever see Wayne Butler drunk again, you ain't going to have to wonder why. You're going to know why. It's because I could not or would not give myself up completely to this simple program. And therein lies the need for me to have a sponsor because my sp I allow my sponsor's objectivity to override my subjectivity. And let me tell you something. Everything about Wayne Butler directed towards himself is subjective. I'm going to cut myself a break every time. My cunning mind is going to take over. I know you mean well. Thank you for that. But here's what I'm going to do. And until I learn how that self-destructive behavior is killing me, I'm not going to stop doing it. And so that phase, phase two restoration has a duality to it that I want you newcomers to know about. The first part of that duality is we have an opportunity to get restored to soundness of mind where alcohol is concerned. How does that, what does that look like? It looks like right now I know for a fact, I've accepted that I can never take a drink of alcohol safely. Yes, I can take a drink. I got money in my pocket, got money in the bank. I, I can take a drink, but I can't do it safely. And I have proven that to myself. And you keep proving it to me by sharing your stories. That's why it's so important that we keep telling our drinking stories. Because when you tell your drinking story, I ain't talking about all the drugs that get talked about and all these interesting things that have nothing to do with AA. When you tell your drinking story, the alcoholic in me connects with the alcoholic in you. And, I and I'm reminded that I can't drink alcohol safely. I have conceded to my innermost self, I can't drink alcohol safely. And when I got hurt two months ago, I was in a level eight or nine pain, 24 seven, 365. My VA doctor who knows my case offered me a low dose opioid. And I said, so you want me to be a low dose addict? Is that what you're saying to me? Because too many of you have told stories where you tried painkillers and you innocently, innocently couldn't stop and got addicted again. Why can't that happen to me? I know it can happen to me. So I appreciate you telling that story. My son-in-law, Brian, I took him to AA, NA, and CA. So he might get a beat on what program he fits mostly in. And he went for a while. And then he called me up one day and said, dad, that's not for me. I said, okay. Just let me know if you want to go again. He overdosed on his first attempt at fentanyl. There wasn't anybody there in the Narcan. And, and my son-in-law died at two o'clock in the morning because he thought he could try fentanyl one time. And there's legions of stories like that. But I tell you how that helps me. I have come to believe that your stories are cautionary tales for me, that that could happen to me too. And I don't want to take that chance. Now, so I have, re I have been restored to soundness of mind where alcohol is concerned. But there's a duality to that. There's also another thing to be restored to. And I don't mean to offend anybody, but you know, by the time you get to steps four through nine, we're starting to talk about that thing called God. And if, you, if you're new and you have a problem with God, I want you to know something. God is not a religion. God is just God. And I'm okay with that word. When you add religion to it, I perkle up a little bit. But when it's just God, G-O-D, good orderly direction, 
good orderly design for living, group of drunks, gift of desperation. I can wrap my mind around that, that that and AA are interconnected. They're inextricably linked. And here's the deal. In the restoration phase, part two of steps four through nine, Wayne Butler has the opportunity to get a new start. You see, when Bill wrote in step three, we were reborn, when you read the history of where that came from, he was talking from the 10th step side. When they'd gotten into steps 10, 11, and 12, they were reborn after they did four through nine. They weren't reborn, then did steps four through nine. I often had the cart before the horse. The truth is, is they were talking in, in retrospect. And so when he says they came to believe, that means they didn't believe. They can't. I didn't believe either that God could help me. But I came to believe that God helped me through AA. God gave me the gift of AA, and every answer I've ever needed can be found here in Alcoholics Anonymous. Isn't that a powerful thing? And so steps four through nine, here's what they offer me. They offer me the, the opportunity to clear away the wreckage of my past, to get a fresh. Wouldn't everybody like to have a fresh start? Get to start over completely. Get to wipe away the past completely. That's steps four through nine. And I get a chance to start over. How many people like me and you get a chance to start over with a clean slate and to feel like we matter? You know, one of the worst feelings I've ever had is the feeling of irrelevance. It's the worst feeling I've ever had. I felt so irrelevant, like I didn't belong here. I didn't deserve to be here. I have no place to be here where I feel like I fit in, belong, and I'm a part of. I'm here before you right now, and I feel like I fit in, belong, and I'm a part of. I feel needed, wanted, and loved. Steve has gone out of his way to make sure I get around to some meetings since I've been able to walk with a walker. Carrie does my grocery shopping for me. I've got other members of AA that have been looking after me. So they, they, there's so many, so many of them. I got, got to tell some of them, no, I got nothing for you to do. I try to make something up just like we do with, like we do with commitments to give a newcomer something to do. <laughs> and so I want you newcomers to know that if you're sitting there thinking your life is hopeless going forward, that there's no hope for you, that there's nothing you can do. I sponsor a lot of alcoholics. I've got some grand sponsors, great grand sponsors that have gone from nothing to they're doing their PhDs right now. One's getting her master's, going to do a PhD. Some one, one guy, one became a lawyer. I'm watching Carrie come out from Washington, D.C. as an attorney and how she came out here, passed the bar on her first attempt, California bar, and how she has given herself up this AA way of life. I get to witness that. You know what that does for me? Keeps me plugged in. It makes me believe that I can do this thing one more day. And my slate is clean. I did four through nine. And, and God knows in his wisdom, when he brought about this fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, he knows in his wisdom that I'm going to make mistakes going forward. Is anybody surprised by that? <laughs> Especially if you're a psychopath type alcoholic like I am, right out of the doctor's opinion. Have you read that in the doctor's opinion? He talks about the psychopath type, the sociopath type. Let me tell you a quick story. I got five minutes left. I'm timing myself too, like I said. Five minutes. Okay. I was so grateful to read that part of the doctor's opinion because, like I said, I've been psychiatrically institutionalized 17 times. I've been diagnosed a variety of 21 diagnoses from the age of nine to the age of 27. Medicated from the age of nine to 27 for those diagnoses and to come find out those were all misdiagnosed. I was being diagnosed as clinically ill when, in fact, evidence shows that I wasn't clinically sick at all. I was spiritually sick. And how do I know that? Because I've taken steps one through nine, gotten a clean state got a new start. And then the third phase of AA, a 12-step development, is the transformation phase. Desperation, restoration, transformation. Steps 10, 11, and 12 are the transformation phases. They're the change agent in AA. My sponsor is the agent in step three. My friends are the agents in my change in, in AA, uh, according to step three. And so 
By taking step 10 on a regular basis, I get to keep that slate clean. I pay my bills early. Every bill I've got, I pay three weeks at a time or more. My credit rating went from under 400, if there is such a number, to over my, my and I ain't bragging, my FACO score is 819 right now. But I'm 73 years old and I don't even make enough money to borrow money against that credit report. <laughs> but if you've got a master's degree on your wall, I got a FICO score on mine. <laughs> That's how I look at it. My successes aren't like yours, and yet they are. Whatever successes we have that make me feel good about myself, that makes me be a good example of those still looking suffering alcoholics that don't believe they can have help and hope. I felt absolutely hopeless. I didn't believe my slate could be clean. I did not believe I'd be able to walk with my head up anywhere. I didn't believe I could ever be a civilized human being. When I came here, I had no compassion for another human being, no empathy. I had no guilt of conscience. I had a hard time with step four because I didn't feel bad about a thing I did. The only time I felt bad is when it affected me. The psychiatrist diagnosed me as a, as a psychopath with homicidal tendencies on my last institutionalization, and he had the right guy. What's happened is this work, I don't know, I don't know what to call it. All I know is, when, give you an example. In 1974, my youngest daughter was born. I was at Larry's Oasis drinking, celebrating it. And then it occurred to me, I better go to the hospital because how it would look if I wasn't there. I raced drunk to the hospital, got there in time for the delivery of my daughter. And they passed that little baby girl to me and I'm here to report to you. I felt absolutely nothing, nothing. But I knew I should, so I pretended I did. And then I went to Larry's Oasis as quick as I could to drink some more because I was suicidal after that. I'm here to report to you something's happened to me. I've been transformed. I began to care about my sponsees. And because I began to care about my sponsees, my grand sponsees, I began, to, I began to care about my daughter. And then I began to care about my son. It happened to AA first, the trickle-down effect, the ripples of Alcoholics Anonymous. I began to realize that I had empathy for people. I, I remember the first time I had compassion, I didn't know that's what it was. I actually felt for somebody and didn't want nothing from you. Every love affair I've ever had has been transactional, but now I know what it is. It's a commitment to be of service. If I tell a human being I love them, I'm gonna look out for their greater good, my sponsees. I'm gonna push them to do the best they can good that God might want them to do. I'm not gonna accept less than what they're capable of. They may, but I'm not going to, because I know that God will want me to do that. And so here I am, my time is a one, one minute left here. Uh, you know, I became a cop when I was 10 years sober. How about that? Yeah. From a psychopath to a cop. I suppose there's not much of <laughs> See, my record got expunged. The psychiatrist who committed me that last time wrote a book and made my story one of his chapters in his book that got hit published by Hazelton. He said that I was, a, I was untreatable. I was hopeless and I'd be medicated for the rest of my life. And here I am, 45 years, three months, 18 days, no medication, no need for psychiatric help. And all those troubles I came in here with have been taken away one sponsee at a time. One sponsee. They're like sandpaper for my soul because they spin a lot. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to leave you with this. If you're new, if you'll just trust that, that victory over alcohol and freedom to bind yourself, all the other stuff, college, money, jobs, power, money, property, those are all nice things. Go ahead and go get it. Just don't forget AA helped you. And don't put it in front of AA because what you put in front of AA will go away. So those are all good things, but never forget this. AA is about something more subtle and more spiritual. It's about victory over alcohol, freedom from the bondage of self, 
And the access point is the three phases of 12-step development. Thank you.